0: Eighteen years after I left high school, I joined my first tech company that was set up for success. That was actually set up to ship something, anything. As frustrating as it was having to wait nearly two decades before I found a company that knew how to do this properly, it's a pretty simple organisational trick. Disappointingly so. Oh well, I think I've done a great job setting up this week's Engineering Culture podcast. Here it is then, the most important lesson I have to teach, and today, the most important question I ask you about any company I'm getting involved with. Are you accountable? a summer job working for a large cable manufacturer they made various commercial and industrial cables wire coaxial fiber optic they made it all my workstation was in the small no man's land between the well-lit air-conditioned offices and the expansive pungent noisy factory floor i printed the labels that were stuck on the side of the reams of cable some cables were thin rolls to be used for connecting a device to a laptop some were thick monsters to be buried deep underground I had several different printers, different labels, all kinds of different templates. For all the complicated combinations of labels I might be asked to print, I had a relatively simple job. I had an in-tray of orders, I had an out-tray of printed sticky labels and plastic folders. Every now and then, someone from the office came in to put more requisitions in the in-tray, and someone from the factory came to collect the completed sticky labels. What could be easier? This was a great system when everything worked well. I got really good at my job pretty quickly. I noted the peaks and troughs of orders, and when it was important to have certain types completed urgently. I prided myself on making sure the labels were printed well, that the data were correct, the fields positioned correctly, the ink always topped up. Ultimately, the customer didn't really care about the labels, and neither did the business. The customer wanted good quality cable to arrive exactly where and when they specified and the business wanted to get paid for it. Being a link in the chain means you lose sight of this. All you can see is your link. One day, I picked up an order from the intray. It was one of the rarer templates, not as strictly defined as some of the other formats, and this one in particular had several fields missing that I'd expect to see, including a SKU. Shopkeeping unit, a common product inventory term. I put it to one side for my supervisor to look at, It was later that day when he looked it over and confirmed that it should go back to the requisitioner for correction. A few days after that, a factory worker storms into no man's land, demanding his labels. I start to recall what he's talking about and stumble through an explanation, but it's getting nowhere. This man was not leaving empty-handed. My chain-smoking supervisor, hearing the raised voice, comes over to my workstation. It's no good, Jim. This order needs to go back to sales to get fixed. But Jim from the factory wasn't having it. That'll take days. I've got 40 reams on the factory floor ready to be shipped and nowhere to put them. I need these labels today. My supervisor flinched, then reached for his cigarette lighter, fighting the urge to spark up indoors. He looks at the order again and tries to think of any way to make the problem disappear. Right. Put that field there, leave the skew blank, and that'll have to do. The tension abated instantly. Cheers, mate, really appreciate this. I had the labels printed in a couple of minutes, and it was back to silently going through the intray again. When we're a link in the chain, we only think about our responsibilities to the link. My supervisor didn't want to be responsible for letting a label go out without a valid skew on it. That was more important to him than a customer getting their order on time. The factory floor manager needed space for the subsequent reams that were about to come out of production. He didn't care about whether a customer would be able to tell at their end exactly what product had been delivered. The same happens all the time in tech companies. Many capitalist groups divide the labour into different skill sets. The team of product managers who meet regularly to ensure they understand their market and know how best to define their product requirements or create epics for engineers to build. Teams of software engineers who meet regularly to debate best practice, new technologies and whether to use Vim or Emacs, break down the epics into different user stories or tasks. Teams of quality assurance testers who meet with each other regularly to talk about testing hierarchies and how to write Cucumber BDD test cases and validate the latest changes for bugs and feature regressions. And finally, teams of sysadmins who meet each other regularly to share updates on their side projects like running a DNS server in their home network, take the latest engineering build and promote them to the production service. With the labour divided, everyone gets really good at their jobs. They talk every day with people who do the same job as them, and they become better and better at whatever it is they all think they're there to do. Which is to be a link in the chain, right? You take the output of one team and move it along to become the input for another. You get paid every month, so someone must be getting the benefit out of this. And it's the fact that you get paid every month that this comparison with the original division of labour idea from Adam Smith falls down. If you set up a bakery and you don't have any bread to sell, you can complain about the delivery of flour not arriving, or the electricity being cut off, but it makes no difference to the outcome. Whether it's your fault or not, you're not getting paid. As a salaried employee, you might make a mistake. You might not collaborate seamlessly with your colleagues, or you might be perfect and in spite of your heroic efforts, the chain of delivery still fails and the positive business outcomes don't materialise. You still get paid. You can't do this at every company, or with every person, but I always like to assume best intentions. Not everyone is competent though, and not everyone does have the best of intentions. The more links in a chain to delivery, the more diluted accountability becomes. Everyone is responsible, so no one is responsible. When these chained items work well, the business gets great outcomes, delivered efficiently. When things go wrong, it's easier for individuals to point fingers and blame the other links in the chain. One team says, I need a skew on this order. Another says, I can't deliver these reams because they're not labelled yet. Picture yourself as the person who has to resolve this issue. You have to forensically question every protagonist in the chain, each with their own biases and understanding of reality. Each person could be deep in an organizational hierarchy. It may take several business leaders to change processes to stop a similar error reoccurring. Accountability yields focus on what's important. The book Skin in the Game by Nassim Nicholas Taleb looks at multiple examples of responsibility and accountability and provides insight and advice. For example, don't trust an investment tip from an investor who hasn't put any of their own money on it. You could think about your own life briefly to a time when you were going to be held completely responsible for an outcome, whether good or bad. Didn't you make sure you did everything you could to make it a success? Responsibility is the key, but responsibility for the correct thing, not your link in the chain, but rather the outcome, the business outcome that you want to see. If you set up teams to be like links in a chain, the outcomes become everyone's responsibility and therefore no one's responsibility. No responsibility, no accountability. Every team will have an output. For some teams it's not only easy to describe, but you can even see it. Say, it's your job to make reams of cable. But even the most esoteric or intangible outputs can be described and measured if a suitably experienced person puts some thought into it. Teams that produce software for paying customers could be measured in terms of user satisfaction, number of active users, service availability, and also, yes, the amount of cold hard cash their service brings in. When I started in the tech industry, Waterfall was still the de facto methodology for making software. And in my team, software engineers, no other type of skill set required. Engineering, software engineering. The pioneers looked at how physical engineers built a bridge or a skyscraper, and how it was planned and surveyed at every step, and they modeled a similar process for how to build quality software. From requirements gathering to functional specifications to technical specifications and test plans, through to quality assurance and verification, a different role for every step. Each expert coming from their own team, delivery via lots of little links in a long chain, Most software made today does not use the waterfall method. We'll talk more about the more popular alternatives in another episode soon. But regardless of the method, we still need lots of different experts to make software. Product, what should we build? Design, what should it look like? UX, how should it work? Engineering, how should we build and run it? We barely scratched the surface last week with the three core skills of a software engineer, programmer, developer, and operations. There are so many more disciplines within engineering. Data scientists, data engineers, data analysts, database administrators, security engineers, penetration testers, release engineers, test engineers, quality assurance, network engineers, system administrators, site reliability engineers. The titles go on and on. Expect each company to have their own interpretation of what each is. I haven't even mentioned that some software products may need constant input from a person from marketing, growth, legal, sales or consultancy. So we can't get away from needing lots of different skills to make software. But we also can't have lots of different teams passing partially completed work from one team to the next. The solution is to create one single team and make them responsible for a business outcome. That team will be made up of the experts needed to deliver it. For the best teams and companies, the days of software engineers working only with other software engineers are over. In the intro, I mentioned that there's one question I ask about companies whose importance is above all others. How are engineering teams organized? The answer I'm looking for has a few names. Service teams, multidisciplinary teams, or, thanks to Spotify, squads. Spotify have evolved their process from when they first shared their squad model with the world. You don't need to get too deep into their processes and organisational structure to appreciate the simple lesson that they introduced with squads. One of the concepts that we'll come back to again and again is that everything is a trade-off. Organizing all the experts you need to solve a business problem will optimize for that business problem. But you will be working day to day with people from a different discipline. This may slow you down as you take time to understand a completely alien viewpoint. Your deeply analytical people will have to learn how to play nicely with your creative dreamers. The engineers solving problems for one business problem may be duplicating work that engineers in another team have already solved. Now, your engineers across the company aren't speaking to each other as deeply or regularly, these downsides will happen. That's okay, though. It's a trade off, and one which has a better outcome for the business owing to the accountability it brings. What the Spotify squad model goes on to describe is how to augment this one simple choice, creating multidisciplinary teams, and create a working company that mitigates the downsides of this trade off. They introduce concepts called tribes, chapters, and guilds. Tribes ensure that similar teams align to collaborate on bigger strategic objectives. Guilds give those with a shared special interest, for example, machine learning, a place to come together to learn and spread best practice. Chapters give individuals who would otherwise be too isolated, such as UI designers, a secondary home away from their primary team where they can talk to others doing the same job. Think of the Spotify model as one case study though. For the rest of the episode we're going to focus just on the service team aspect and some of the biggest consequences of organizing your workforce into service teams. Hand in hand with service teams is the phrase you build it you run it. This is the accountability that we want to see Let's take a hypothetical example of ring fencing a product feature which has a business outcome the service team can be held responsible for. Imagine you're the manager of a team which looks after a web product for a part of an e-commerce site where users can customize their order before continuing to payment. Other teams are handling store catalog, search, user login and payment processing. Your team is looking after some aspects of order customization, say different shipping options for one. One day, users find the button they need to press to continue beyond order customization has stopped working and they cannot progress to the payment step to complete the order. It turns out that the servers required to run API endpoints for shipping have a misconfigured Docker container and the required HTTP response is generating a 500 level error. The company will have its own internal processes for identifying, escalating, mitigating, and permanently resolving such incidents. But it's clear who the responsible party is, though. The order customization service team takes ownership of fixing the problem, investigating how it happened in the first place, and ultimately, responsibility for the consequences of such an outcome. You build it, you run it, means that engineers need to know the consequences their code changes and deployments may have. In addition to the product boundary, they need to understand the tech stack boundary. Do they own every layer in the tech stack from low-level network routing, load balancing and service orchestration, or do they just take responsibility for the application service code? Different companies draw the lines at different points. One common pattern in a large tech company is to devote a percentage of your engineering workforce, perhaps 10%, to creating developer enablement teams. These teams produce internal services whose users are the teams the other 90% of engineers belong to. For example, one team might be responsible for running a large general purpose Kubernetes cluster with custom horizontal scaling. Teams using this service publish a Docker image and the developer enablement team run the appropriate number of Docker containers on their behalf. To differentiate between developer enablement teams and going back to the original problem service teams were intended to solve, accountability spread like links in a chain, it's vital that your developer enablement teams have clear business outcomes themselves. They need to treat teams that use their service as if they were paying customers. The team providing the Kubernetes cluster could have business outcomes for reliability, availability, latency, as well as usage, which they can use to demonstrate their value to the business. These teams by definition support internal teams, so employees, that is the engineers and their teams, are their customers. Exactly the same amount of responsibility to their customers needs to be in place, regardless of whether the customer is internal or external, their success and or failure should be judged against the metrics which can be verified and challenged. T-shaped engineers In the same way that different skill sets are needed in a team to solve all the different business problems product, growth, design, etc., Different engineering skill sets are needed to solve each problem. Imagine the situation where you're the engineering manager working in a company where there are no tech stack boundaries. You've been given a new project in a cloud computing environment where you have access to all kinds of tools for networking, compute, queuing, databases, caching, object storage, etc. You could build anything. So who do you choose to fill out your team? Let's say this product has a responsive web UI. It also needs a highly available data persistence layer and computation which can cope with large unpredictable spikes in traffic demand. This product will be available globally and requires low latency response times. To solve these problems, you need engineers who understand HTML, CSS, JavaScript UI frameworks, concurrent programming, databases, cap theorem, immutable infrastructure as code, plus many more. It's hard to find a group of 6 to 10 engineers, sometimes referred to as a two-pizza team, who are all experts in all of these areas. And it would certainly be expensive even if you could hire a group like that. The you build it, you run it philosophy converges on hiring engineers who can be an expert in a small number of areas but have general skills and understanding across a broad range of them. For example, A systems engineer may know how to programmatically create interconnected cloud infrastructure such as VPCs, compute instances, databases, etc. using scripting technologies such as CloudFormation or Terraform or programming libraries like Pulumi. Other engineers in the team may not be able to accomplish this themselves but they would understand enough to make a simple change for example, alter the minimum number of compute instances running by default in a scaling group. A front-end engineer may be able to create a single-page progressive web app from scratch. This could be out of the comfort zone for a primarily back-end-facing software engineer, but they could still add a new drop-down option with accompanying API call to an existing UI. In both examples, the engineers should understand the release process well enough to perform the required testing and deploy their changes to the live production system for users. Working in a team like this leans heavily into the software developer skill set. Engineers need to be able to communicate well with their colleagues so they can learn about what they need to learn and defer to the expertise of others where appropriate. That you run it has had an effect on the most elite engineers in a company. For engineers who want to deliver impact beyond a single team but don't want to join management, in previous generations they'd work as a software architect. More common in modern tech companies today and beyond the rank of senior engineer are staff and principal engineers. How they work with the teams developing and maintaining their individual services has changed subtly. Back when teams of engineers were working together with just other engineers, they were more of a homogeneous blob. The most senior engineer for a given area or product could have had a title-like tech lead. This role is mostly about being a software engineer who makes decisions when asked. They might have had some small managerial tasks to do, but mostly they focus on their job and occasionally need to unblock the team. Beyond working in one team, software architects would work over multiple and for the most part, wouldn't be contributing to everyday feature development or operations. This coveted architecture title came with the responsibility of creating the service design for large new projects as and when required. You know, the most fun stuff. They got to think about common problems, try out new technologies, maybe go to conferences and instruct a group of engineers in building out their software architecture vision and then they leave the engineers who built the service to run it day to day. In the you build it, you run it world, there are two problems with this way of working. Firstly, it's unsustainable. Secondly, it's kind of patronising. Let's deal with the sustainability argument first. When you code every day and have done for a decade, you'll be a great programmer software developer you'll make great decisions about trade-offs on performance, clarity and delivery, as well as a host of other concerns. But once you stop looking after a system day in, day out, you'll begin to coast. You won't be the expert in the room. That qualification goes to the engineer who's only a few years into their second job, but dealing with the consequences of balancing out the demands of the system architecture on incoming feature requests, increased usage and a constant triaging of customer escalations. Things that someone who gets to play around with every new framework doesn't have the time for anymore. Moving on to the patronising argument, it's a strong stance for an individual to take. To say to a team, you have to take responsibility for the outcomes of your service, but I'm going to tell you how to make any significant change to it. Significant new engineering work is a chance to design collaboratively, for a group of senior engineers to consider a solution together, It's a chance for non-senior engineers to understand why things are done in a certain way, and even be given the opportunity to throw in their own suggestions. Ultimately, the biggest argument against the architecture role is that incentives are not aligned. If you are not going to be woken up in the middle of the night to fix a problem with a system, you can make decisions where you don't face the consequences of a bad one. While there is some crossover, The expectations for a principal engineer have evolved to work with you build it, you run it. The difference is that the principal engineer knows how to ensure a good design is created by guiding and informing a team, rather than giving a team a design to implement. They are skilled communicators and people leaders in their own right, even without managerial responsibility. It's a matter of skin in the game. If you're not on the on-call rotor, you should be an advisor. It's a hard job to get right in all situations, but the best ones spread harmony, consistency, and a feeling of good vibes and support in times of crisis over a large number of teams. There's more to this simple organizational trick of service teams than just creating accountability. It also enables fast delivery. When shipping a new feature requires sign-off from multiple teams, you cannot iterate quickly. You cannot fix bugs or deliver any kind of value instantaneously. There's a concept called Cargo Cult that is mostly seen with agile software delivery, a subject which gets its own episode. Cargo cults also apply here to service teams. Without going into the detail on the etymology of the Cargo Cult phrase, it occurs when someone tries to mimic something they've seen others do to achieve an outcome, without understanding the reasons why. For service teams, it's not enough just to get everyone on the same team. If you still have the same bureaucratic controls that used to be spread over a fleet of teams, you're not realising all the benefits available. The senior leadership of each discipline has to buy into the organisational change. This is what we talked about in the previous episode you need people who have an open mind to change. I worked in a company where, after a change to service teams was made, every team responsible for a product which had a UI was given a designer to join them. The designer would attend team meetings, get an understanding of the work that was coming up, ask questions, and share their early thinking about how the UI could look. They'd work in collaboration with product managers and engineers. In the early days though, there was a cargo culting from senior design leadership. A service team was not permitted to release any changes to their code that changed the UI until it had sign off from a centralized design team process. This was a failure to understand that part of the reason for getting everyone into one team was to enable not just accountability, but also quick decision making. Indeed, how can a team be accountable for timely delivery if they have expensive restrictions on how they deliver? So that's it for this week. Two important points were introduced in this episode. Every team building software should be accountable to its customers, regardless of whether those customers are internal or external to the company. They, as a single team of multidisciplinary individuals, will be responsible for making sure that a specific set of business problems are solved. Secondly, being responsible as a software team goes hand in hand with you build it, you run it. These two points together have consequences for the preferred engineering skill set, namely that T-shaped engineers are preferred to those who are solely an expert in one field, or solely a generalist in several there are also consequences for the types of roles that come up, and they're not compatible with the old software architect model. I could try to argue endlessly on these organisational points, but to be honest, it's already been done much better than I ever could in the book The Phoenix Project. This is a fictional novel about a failing US company that undergoes huge reform after a leadership change. Again, check the details in the show notes. Anywho. Now we're two episodes into the Engineering Culture Podcast, we've already covered a huge amount about how to make a successful tech startup. Get software engineers who are great at programming, development, and operations. Hire people who know that a growing business requires changing how you work when you reach many inflection points on the way. Teams need to be accountable to business goals, and engineers need skin in the game with the you build it, you run it mindset. Well done. You're practically ready to move to the bay and become a CTO. Okay, maybe not. I have more stuff to share about common engineering culture practices. Next time, we look at operational metrics and ask, are you up? Okay, that's it for this time. Remember to check the show notes for the links to the good stuff, and thanks for your ever-continued awesomeness. Catch you later.